Okay, so we are now beginning the podcast. We have read the first verse of 2 Samuel 24, in which the Lord is inciting David against Israel, and we have now turned to 1 Chronicles chapter 21, verse 1. Satan, ha-Satan, in the Hebrew, the adversary. That's how, he's, that's how he is in the book of Job. Satan, ha-Satan, the adversary, rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. Okay, so who incited David? Was it the Lord? Or was it Satan? Or was it the Lord? Or was it Satan? See, if you are somebody who simply says, the Bible says that I believe it, that's it, you are stuck here. Is Samuel more inspired than 1 Chronicles? Is 1 Chronicles more inspired than Samuel? You want to get in that game? No, you don't want to get in that game. So, what do we do here? Well, we look at it and we say, Here's, here's how I would do it. I would look and I would say, well, I'll bet you that the oldest tradition around this is that the Lord incited David here. And the, the subsequent writers and editors, including the chronicleist, was extremely uncomfortable with that. And said to himself, well, God can't do that. God's not going to incite David here. So it becomes Satan who incites David. And so the, chron the chronicleist puts down Satan. Do I know exactly what? No, if you ask scholars, all these Old Testament scholars here, they would all have their own opinion and be ready to argue it out. But do any of them truly know? No, they don't really know because this is a long, long time ago. But it just illustrates you have to be willing to come to Scripture recognizing that it comes from a long, long time ago. And it really isn't our job to bang it all together and eliminate every idiosyncrasy that we find in it. And this is one. This is a kind of a dramatic one. You, know, uh, you want to know what another one is? It is Jesus turning over the tables. So in John's Gospel, when does Jesus turn over the tables of the temple? Chapter 2, right at the beginning of his ministry. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when does he do it? He does it on the Monday before he's crucified, at the very end of the Gospel, at the very end of his ministry. So where are you left with? Well, you could say, well, I think he probably did it twice. That seems not likely. More likely, perhaps, is that John wants to communicate to you Jesus' confrontation with the temple folks way early. And so that's where he puts the story. He doesn't feel hung up on chronological stuff. These people don't even have clocks, right? He's not hung up on that. This, this is not part of what... What's, what's important, John, is that you understand who Jesus is, not the detailed order in which everything happened. Could be right, 
Interesting, the very first harmony of the Gospels, where you try to take all four Gospels and cram them together under one chronological framework, that chronological framework was John's. That didn't last. Pretty much it became like Mark became the basic. When you try to cram them together, the chronological framework. And it's, it's why I don't try to cram them together and I don't get uptight about it. I think John did it. He moved it early so that we quickly comprehended the depth of Jesus' confrontation with the temple priests. <laughs> and that then becomes sort of a guiding light to reading the rest of John's gospel. But if you're if your bumper sticker says the Bible says that I believe it, that's it. You're just going to be, you're just going to end up kind of lost sometimes. So, okay, my friends. So let's go back to chapter 24 and let's see what God really incited David to do. Or Satan, I don't care, take your pick. We could have a vote here except I don't want him. So, so God says to David, go and take a census of Israel and Judah. Notice the first line. It says, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. And the, God's response is to tell David to go take a census. So, if God is angry at Israel, why would the response be to take a census? Take down names. Uh, why would what's wrong with taking down names? What's wrong with it? Yeah, I mean God's angry with them. His response is to take is to do a census of all of Israel. What are the dangers in a census? Key Old Testament part. Go back to First Samuel eight. When Samuel comes to them and says to them, you want a king, but you really don't, those kings are takers, 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 takers. They'll take everything you've got, including your men. So what does the census enable them to do? Raise an army. Raise an army. The king says, I'm gonna, I know where everybody is. I know who they are. I know how many we got. So it's an enabling factor in, that can be abused by a king. It's a little bit like why gun, gun owners in America object to the idea of a national gun registry. They don't want the government knowing where all the guns are. Well, maybe you don't want the government knowing where all the, all the fighting men are and how many there are because you know those kings are just going to abuse it. So, but God's told David to do this. Verse 2, <clears throat> verse 2. So the king said to Joab and the army commanders with him, go throughout the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and enroll the fighting men so that I may know how many there are. But Joab replied to the king, may the Lord your God multiply the troops a hundred times over and may the eyes of my Lord the king see it. But why does my Lord the king want to do such a thing? So Joab very straightforwardly resists, very straightforwardly. The king's word, however, overruled Joab and the army commanders, so they left the presence of the king to enroll the fighting men of Israel. <clears throat> 
After crossing the Jordan, they camped near Aurora, south of the town in the gorge, and then went through Gad and on to Jazer. They went to Gilead and the region of Tatim Hachi and on to Dan Jahan and around towards Sidon. This is marching to the north and the west. Boom, this is marching, marching north and west toward the Mediterranean. Then they went toward the fortress of Tyre and all the towns of the Hivites and Canaanites. Finally, they went down to Beersheba, Beersheba in the Negev, that's deep in the south. So they're basically saying they went all over Israel, counting, 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 counting. After they had gone through the entire land, they came back to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. Joab reported the number of the fighting men to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 able-bodied men who could handle a sword. That's a lot of people. And in Judah, 500,000. So notice one thing. Notice how large a portion of the total is represented by Judah. 500 of 800. Five-eighths. Judah is far and away the biggest tribe. <coughs> when the northern tribes um, leave the tribe of Judah in the south um, after King Solomon's death, the tribe of Judah becomes the southern kingdom pretty well in and of themselves because they are the biggest and the strongest of the 12 tribes by far, by far. Okay, thoughts, reflections? Now David was conscience stricken after he had counted the fighting men. And he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. And you're thinking to yourself, Okay, so if I just read the story, God told him to do this. To do this census, which is wrought with opportunities for abuse. And now David feels guilty because he feels like he shouldn't have done the census, but God asked him to. If you work through those questions, don't you make it, get some sense of why the writer of Chronicles might have changed the inciter to Satan. I mean, if that's the process, I don't, I don't know what it was. I am, I'll put it on my index card for God. I'll find out someday. I'll report back. <laughs> Wouldn't it be a hoot if I could? Yes, my love. The reason why God gave him to do the census, David has taken it on himself that doing the census is fighting the fighting it just, says, it just says the reason that God has him do it is because God is angry at Israel. And then God says, David, do this. And now, but if God tells me to do something, it would, it strikes me as a bit odd that I would feel guilty about doing it. Does that make sense? Because God told me. Now what, now let's just talk about one caution here. Patty and I just finished watching a show on Waco. 
David Koresh. This was a dramatization both before and after. Same actors, basically. I think they had to switch out David Koresh, but anyway. Um, the, the, the events leading up to that, to April 19th, whatever year it was, and then a five-part aftermath. When you first meet David Koresh in this series, he seems pretty normal. But he lost his way and he became convinced of all these things that God was telling him to do. And if God was telling him to do these things, how could anybody argue with him? Are you going, so his opinion became, well, are you going to go against God? That is really, that is really dangerous. Okay? If, 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 um, if you end up in a church someday where one of your pastors is saying to you all this stuff about what God told them to do, find another church. Really, I'm serious. You know, it, it, it's, it's easy to read these books and think that, well, I mean, I mean God spoke to David and he spoke to Jeremiah and, and so forth, and so why shouldn't he speak to me? First of all, the fact that God spoke to David and God spoke to Isaiah was borne out over time in that the community accepted the truth of it and that the community of God's people accepted the truth of Jeremiah's prophecies and the rest of it. And that's how they became sacred scripture. David Koresh never submitted himself to the larger Christian community, who I'm pretty sure would have said, are you crazy? Right? So, so, so that's, that's one thing. The other thing is, a lot of people are, they think that we need in our time in 2023, a fresh word of revelation. We need something fresh from God, something new. We don't. The culmination of the story was 2,000 years ago. The culmination of the story is in Jesus. Everything that you need is contained in the pages of Scripture. You don't have to add anything to it. That's why there are the warnings in the New Testament about adding anything to it. You don't have to do that. You don't, there's no need to do that. You want to be ready for Jesus? <coughs> oh man, I'm getting too worked up. You want to be ready for Jesus to come back? You don't need somebody to come and tell you something you never heard before. It's all here. It's all in the pages of Scripture. Go to Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit. Just do that. There you go. That's one verse, half of one verse. Just do that. Be kind and... Arthur's memorized them, I have it. I'll have to work on that. Be kind and gracious and, and self-disciplined and self-controlled. Yeah, the New Testament has all that. We just want to think there's some magic to it all. When, when somebody says to you, well, I sat down and I had a piece of paper and a pen, you know, and I prayed and I prayed and I prayed and I prayed for six days, and then God said to me, and I wrote it down. You know what that, 
You know what that person is saying that page is? Scripture. Right? No. No. So, so God does... God does prod us. God does speak to us. But God will never contradict what you find in the pages of Scripture. And if you want somebody to be a sounding board for what you think you have found in the pages of Scripture, or what you think God has told you, then you need to find Christian friends. That's why we read the Bible in community. It's to keep us from veering way off the highway, like David Koresh and countless others who have veered off the highway. Okay. Okay, so now David has gone and done this. And any thoughts or reflections on that? I won't call it a rant, but... Okay. So they've gone through, they traveled the whole country, top to bottom, 800,000 in total, 500,000 of those are from the tribe of Judah. <clears throat> Verse 10, go back to that. David was conscious stricken after he had counted the fighting men, and he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, Lord, I beg you to take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. That probably sounds fantastic online. Before David got up the next morning, the word of the Lord had come to Gad, the prophet, David's seer. When I was, when I was much younger, I never quite understood that word. I, I, my brain tended to put it in the category of searing steaks or something. A, a seer is actually someone who sees. What do they see? In the ancient world, they saw past the veil. In the ancient world, there was a thin veil that separated the world we live and walk in every day from the world of the spirits and God and whatever your culture was, whatever was on the other side, goblins, brownies, whatever it might be. Seers could see the future. So this um, Gad is currently David's prophet. David's seer. <clears throat> and so the Lord said to Gad, go and tell David, quote, this is what the Lord says. I am giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. <sighs> well, that doesn't sound good, does it? This might be one of those things where you're presented with three options and none of them are good. So Gad went to David and said to him, Shall there come on you three years of famine in your land? Three years of famine? What king would want to bring that on their people? Or three months of fleeing from your enemies while they pursue you? Well, would focus it on David better than inflicting three years of famine on his people or three days of plague on your land. So now we're down to three days of something bad. 
Now then, think it over and decide how I should answer the one who sent me. So here's, the, here's David's choices. Door number one, three months of famine. Door number two, right? David is chased and pursued for three months. Honestly, you wonder why he just didn't take, he doesn't take that one. I mean, he's, he had a lot of experience with this, right? So yeah, all right. There are places he could go camp out for 90 days and never be found. Or number three, three days of plague. So David said to Gad, I am in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but do not let me fall into human hands. So David is taking number two off the table. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel from that morning until the end of the time designated. All right? And 70,000 of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. This is where, you know, you, you come to Scripture and you just, you're putting your hands on your head and you do ask yourself, like, What is this? What is happening here? How is this in my beloved Bible? Verse 16, when the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord relented concerning the disaster and said to the angel who was afflicting the people, enough, withdraw your hand the angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. Okay. We don't know what the plague was, but it wasn't good if it was able to kill 70,000 people. Plagues were very common in the ancient world. If you're going to tell the history of any portion of the ancient world, you had to account for the plagues, which come sweeping through, sweeping through, sweeping through, because they didn't have medicine. They didn't even understand most of the mechanics. There were, there were Christians we know about in the fourth century, as early as the fourth century, who would really take on the job of caring for people when these plagues came. There's one who's kind of famous, though I can't remember his name right now, who in his city, he set up all of these beds, he and his helpers set up all of these beds for people who would come down with the plague to, to be in and to be cared for as best they could, which meant merely what? Trying to feed them, maybe, if they would eat, cool, cool off their head with water or a rag, there wasn't much they could do. Anoint them with oil, something, anything they could think of, but. And sadly, that Christian died, the one who put that all together, because he, he succumbed to the plague himself, unsurprisingly. But that's, that's part of what the Christians did. You see, that had never happened before. Christians were the first ones to sit at the bedside of six strangers, because everybody in this world was terrified of plagues. Read the story of the Black Death in medieval Europe, and you'll, you'll see. Okay, so now God has said to the angel, of, enough, 
withdraw your hand. And the angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Arunah the Jebusite. <coughs> when David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to Yahweh, I have sinned. I, the shepherd, have done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall on me and my family. So I don't know. What do we take from a story like this? We don't know why God was angry with Israel. We can't even be sure it's even God who instigated David. Chronicleist says no. It's Satan. Right? Um, you know, for ancient people, God would be the first cause of all everything that happens, the sun rising in the west. Or, does the sun rise in the west? <laughs> sun rises in the east and sets in the west, right? Right? Yeah, Scott. Okay. I'm a very sophisticated person. So, um, what? And the world is flat. Yes, my friend. So, so. What? If we blame it on Satan, if we go with the Chronicles, then it makes sense that Satan inspired him. He went ahead and bought into it, and all this bad stuff happens. Now he's got to make the choice. See, that's a good point. See, if you do it in Chronicles, and Satan is the instigator here, and David does what Satan has told him to do, that's a big mistake. He may not have realized at the time, because it just says Satan incited him, whatever that means. Well, then the story works better. But here we have at the center of it, God. Now, to me, what David should have done, if I just take the story among the three options, David should have jumped on option two. What is option two? Three months of fleeing from your enemies while they pursue you. Because where does he end up? Where does he end up? Let your hand fall on me and my family. So, David understood that he was the people's shepherd. He was their shepherd king. That was a good image for how kings were to be. Most of the kings were crummy shepherds. It, it isn't a very good moment for David when he has an option to take the burden upon himself and instead cast it out on his people. He does come around to saying, well, you know, um, let, let your hand fall on me and my family. But it's a very perplexing story. There are a number of Old Testament stories that are perplexing. And there are many, and most of them are not where ones where we have this, like, oh, well, maybe it actually is Satan, like in the book of Chronicles, which is sort of an easy, okay, I'll go with that one, because that seems so much better. Um, in a way, they all remind us that we should never, ever think that we understand all that is to be understood about God or why God does what God does or how God does what God does. What do we know? 
We know, we know that God, we know that God suffers and God is willing to suffer. And how do we know that? Because of the cross. On the cross, God enters into human suffering in a way that people, by and large, reject the idea could ever happen to their God. You're not going to get a Muslim engaged in the idea that Allah suffers as we suffer. But the incarnation is all about, yes, God does. So um, a, a fascinating book I have on my shelf is by an Old Testament scholar I enjoy a lot. It's simply entitled, you know, The Suffering God of the Old Testament. And he goes through and look at all these places where, where, where God suffers. But to me, there's a lot of portions of this that are difficult to understand. I could almost take the whole story and put it on an index card and want somebody to explain to me. Yeah. What would be the source of David's epiphany that he really... That he... Okay, so let's take it as it is in Samuel. His realization that, that God told him to do something he should not have done. Okay? Maybe it's a moment when he realized that this, that this census was, was a very bad idea. And he thought back to this business of taking, either from Samuel or... We don't know when chronologically this story is set, but... He has a, a, a moment of insight. Maybe, you know, we could, one could say, okay, maybe this is a bit like God telling Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, right? It's like this test. And um, Isaac, Abraham is willing, but is stopped. David is willing, but stops himself. I, I don't know. You know, good question. So many questions arise from this story. That's why, you know, I was interested. I was working on this story. So I've been my commentaries, you know, I have these little helps. And they were all very brief about this story. You know, the, the people I think who were writing about it just felt very humbled buy it. This is, this is not a story to be dogmatic about at all. But it's there. It's in the book of Samuel. So anyway, anything else anybody want, wants to add? Because we're going to have a good moment from David here to finish off Samuel. On that day, verse 18, because remember the angel of the Lord stopped in Aruna, right? That's a place. No, it's a person. Aruna the Jebusite. Oh, Scott. On that day, Gad went to David and said to him, Go up and build an altar of the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. That's where the angel of the Lord had stopped, at God's instruction. So David went up, as Yahweh had commanded through Gad, 
When Aruna looked and saw the king and his officials coming toward him, he went out and bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. And Aruna said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? And David answered, To buy your threshing floor. This is the working, the working factory, as it were. So I can build an altar to Yahweh that the plague on the people may be stopped. So Aruna said to David, Let my lord the king take whatever he wishes and offer it up. Here are oxen for the bird offering, and here are threshing sledges and ox yokes for the wood. Your majesty Aruna gives all this to the king. May the Lord your king accept you. But the king, that's David, replied to Aruna, No, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offering that cost me nothing. So it's a good moment for David. He is unwilling to just accept all of this as a gift. Aruna is going to get paid, but David recognizes that if this is going to be an offering to God, it needs to come from David out of his own pocket. Not just to be given, you know, we, we give our kids money to put in the offering plate, right? That's to create the habit, but you've got to move them to the point where it's coming from themselves. Because if you just hand them the money and says, drop it in that, right? It's, it's it isn't really an offering unless you were open to your kid saying, gosh, thanks, Mom. He folds it up and puts it in his pocket. <coughs> so David bought the threshing floor and he bought the oxen and he paid 50 shekels of silver for them. David built an altar to Yahweh there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then Yahweh answered his prayer in behalf of the land and the plague on Israel was stopped. Now it is thought by some that we have this little bit of the story because <coughs> this place belonging to this Jebusite is actually on Mount Moriah, the mountain of God, because remember Jerusalem was a Jebusite city. But the city of David is just a bit south of actually Mount Moriah. So it's thought that perhaps we have this because this is now an altar being built on the site that will become the site for the temple. Perhaps. Perhaps so. Perhaps so. So that, my friends, closes out the book of Samuel. Samuel 1 and 2. Charlotte. Yes? Yes, I did say that, didn't I? Yeah. Yes, but, I, but, I, but I've really lost much of my voice today, Charlotte. So I will invite everyone to go home and practice those names for themselves. Okay? Yeah, well, we can all take our stab at it. Sometimes those names... You know, the great thing about the names is that they are preserved for us across all these many, many, many centuries. And those who would say that this is all just fairy tales and legends, all those names is a strong counterpoint 
right? The names, the, the genealogies and then the listing of names and everything is a strong counterpoint to that because it would take, if you were just going to invent these stories, why would you have all of those names? Names that came from somewhere, names that could be remembered, names that could be checked. It's like when it comes to Jesus' resurrection. The tomb belonged to Joseph of Arimathea, according to all four Gospels. If you were making up those accounts, you would never use the name of a prominent person, like a member of the Sanhedrin, Joseph of Arimathea, because it's too easily checked, too easily remembered. So it's a big, strong piece for the essential truth of the gospel accounts about Jesus, the empty tomb, and his resurrection. You know, same way with all these names. Um, I, I, I have read much, much fiction over my life, and I've read very little fiction in which the writer chooses to compile these vastly long names of people that are impossible to pronounce and would bore anybody trying to read them. But they're here because this is the journal. It's not only God's word for us, it's the journal of God's people. And a lot of that past is brought forward and carried in those names. So when we come back next week, you will have all spent time practicing those names on your own. And I, on the other hand, am going forward to 1 Kings chapter 1 because we're going to stay there and we're going to get to David's death. Now actually, the story of David's kingship ends with Samuel. When, when 1 Kings opens, he's old. He, he, we'll see. But we, we will carry David's story since we began it with in 1 Samuel 16. Um, when Samuel arrives and anoints David, we'll carry it all the way through to his death. And then we will either move right into Acts or we will do something else for a short time and start Acts when we start up in January. I don't know. Patty and I will discuss that. If you have input or direction that you would like to give us, because this is a democracy after all, Gary, then, then please send it to me. Okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She can handle it. Y'all ready? I'm going to pray us out of here. As my Baptist friends say, would you pray with me? Gracious Lord, we are grateful to have had the opportunity to come together today to, to, to study your word. It's such a perplexing story. Help make us comfortable to live, living with the perplexity, living with this strange story that we're not, we don't feel like we, we really understand. Let it remind us that indeed, uh, you're not just a better version of us. You are God. You are God. And we should be humble enough every day to remember that we are not and uh, shouldn't expect that we would come to understand all that there is to be understood about who you are and what you do, how you do it, why you do it. But we know this.
because you have revealed to it, it to us that you love us, that you love us so much that you gave your son for us. You love us. What else do we really need to know? All this we pray in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Amen.